Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. All this week, NEPM is focusing on stories surrounding food insecurity. It's Hunger Awareness Week here. And next week, I'll be doing that by marching from Springfield to Greenfield over the course of two days to raise awareness for the Food Bank of Western Mass, who through their work and partnerships combat hunger in all four counties in the 413. And that march gets started right in the heart of Mason Square in Springfield. So today we'll chat with Shannon Rudder, president and CEO of MLK Services, which is where the march kicks off on November 20th. The center provides a plethora of programs to help the greater community, and we'll hear from her about that and more. And we'll talk with another name in local food justice, Liz O'Gilvy, who seems to be everywhere foodways, needs to be doing her best to rebuild those conduits. She's on the board for the Springfield Food Policy Council, gardening the community and more, but always fighting to get food in the hands, I guess, mouths of the people that need it the most. (laughs) Both. But first, we head to East Hampton for more goats. We have met the goats that come and do yoga on your farm. The Thomas Farm goats that we met, Khalees, way back in I March. Know. Mm-hmm. It, oh, yeah. It's still one of the highlights of doing this show was getting to go to their farm and hold the baby goats and just think about not giving it back ever. <laughs> <laughs> just running to my car and being like, you're my goat now. Yeah. That's not an option at Sage Meadow Farm in East Hampton to steal a goat, even though goat yoga right. is an option. Yes, yeah. goat yoga is definitely an option. We, our number of, compared to the Thomas Farm, our number of kids is much lower mm-hmm. because we have much fewer goats, which is actually why we partnered with them because at some point the yoga classes have gotten so popular <laughs> that there's no way that our four or five is gonna do it. You know? So we ended up, they have some insane number, like 160 kids a year. Yeah. And we have to take partial responsibility because one of our bucks got into a pen and bred them all in one day. <laughs> so they had oh, really? they had 35 kids in one day. Whoa. Talk about a one-night stand. I thought, yeah, I thought they were going to kill us. Time for our Local Hero Spotlight with Phil Corman from CESA, the Local Hero folks, and the real McCoys, Joe and Stan McCoy, the owners of Sage Meadow Farm in East Hampton. You do more than goat yoga, but this we're going to definitely talk more about that towards the end. It is lotion season, where all of a sudden uh, everything's dry. No, 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 no. Every season is lotion season. People Thank just you. Re- are reminded, especially in the fall. This is an argument I get into with my partner. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I'm ishy. And I'm, I say, because you don't use the lotion that I tell you to use year round. Just a, a gentle reminder that maybe just go and pick up lotion because your skin will always need it. And I'm classic example of waiting to the last minute until you're wounded. Yeah, exactly. And that's that season right now. So tell us a little bit about how your Sage Meadow Farm in East Hampton got going in the world of lotion. Who wants to start, Joe or, or Stan's the maker, so I'll let him take this one. Lotion was kind of accidental. Um, I was had been making soap for several years and was bored. So I looked up how to make lotion, uh, checked into a couple of my other goat milk friends. They gave me a recipe, which really didn't pan out for me. And then I just sat up in my studio and started making lotions. Some of them were really horrible. You got to break some eggs to make an omelet. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Then I came up with the, the recipe that I have now. It's been tweaked over the years. It's a fantastic lotion. People love it. I get a lot of uh, feedback from it. You got a really interesting call, I was told, just yes. the other day about somebody yeah. using this lotion. Well, actually, let me add on, too, because this I remember that he puts in 40% of the lotion is goat milk. And you're not mm. going to find that in a commercial hand cream. Yeah. Right. Because yep. of the availability of the milk, it's going it's to have more milk in it. And so it's very funny. And we get these all the time. I mean, and it's it's very nice. And he's actually, when he's been stocking in Big Y, he's had people come up to him, oh, my God, are you the, you know, <laughs> 
you know, and almost person. like you've saved my life. You've changed. I mean, this is. I mean, they say that you have changed my life, which is really great to hear. But we got one call, and this was the most recent one. And the, the woman is a dog groomer, and her hands are in water all the time. And she just said, "I just finally tried your product, and." You have changed my life. You know, it was, it was again, this wonderful thing you like to hear because, you know, sometimes you, especially Stan, puts in long hours. And just to hear that, I do have a great product and people do love it. And they come back, which is really nice to see. What's so nice about using goat milk as the base for your lotion or soap? Goat milk is the pH is closer to the human skin. Um, so it's absorbed easier. The, uh, the fat molecules in goat milk are smaller than cow's milk. And it has a lot of uh, goat milk naturally has a lot of selenium, which is great for the skin. What is it? A, mer- a mineral? Selenium? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. See, because I don't, I don't moisturize except for S- emergency <laughs> only situations like S-E now. S-E on the periodic table or S-N I on think the S-E periodic table? For my last example. Not only a mineral, but an element. Yes. Actual element. We're speaking with Joe and Stan McCoy, the owners of Sage Meadow Farm in East Hampton, who are making lotions and other things too? Or is it like all lotion now? What do we got? We have a lot of my original product was goat milk soap. Our main product is goat milk soap, goat milk lotions came in after. Afterwards, but yeah, I make soap a lot, probably seven days a week, um, just to try to keep up with demand. It's I am the only maker in our business currently. <laughs> Stan, can you just describe the day? Can you describe what the physical layout is and what the process is a bit? Uh, sure. My studio is in East Hampton. It's about a mile away from our house. So after you know an hour or two of vegging with my coffee in the morning, I get up and go into the studio and start making soap, I have to change into, my call them my soap clothes are just a mess. Um, <laughs> Ironically. Yes. Yeah. Have you thought about um, using soap? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. It's the cleanest mess ever. Yeah. Yep. Right. Put on gloves, goggles, because I'm, the process of making soap can be caustic uh, because you use lye. And yeah, I just start making soap and I kind of get lost in it. Um, I have echo dots all over the place. <laughs> um, so I have different music playing in different rooms. <laughs> And I just have Alexa play my music, and I get kind of get lost in making soap. So then if you, Stan, are making the soap, who's milking the goats? Um, we do that, too. <laughs> this past season, we didn't milk. We, t- we took the year off um, because milking is it's a chore twice a day, yeah. uh, seven days a week. We do it for about uh, eight months out of the year. And so this year we took the time off and we went with Thomas Farm. They're partners of ours, ours in this. That's the goats we went to go visit. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they have the goat kids too. So Joe is a veterinarian, so he helps them out with veterinarian services and we exchange milk. So I know that the business has been successful enough that you both have sort of decided you're going to grow the business. And uh, you had a way of raising some money and you had a big challenge that happened in the family with that. We did. Um, we. Uh, we're approved for the Biz and Power Grant through Massachusetts, where they match two to one what you, what you raise through crowdsourcing. It's crowdsourcing is something we've never done or even imagined that you would do for a business. Um, but we applied for the grant, and surprise, we, we got it. And it's timed. Once you get it, you have so many days to kick in your crowdsourcing. And 
once you get that started, then you have X amount of days to actually crowdsource. Then once you crowdsource, you have X amount of days to actually complete the whole project. So everything's timed and timed and timed. Oh, they time you through completion of the project. Exactly. Oh. And and you get a match of two to one. That's interesting because, like, as... (laughs) someone with a very serious Kickstarter problem. It's a little fast and loose with delivery times in terms of like finishing projects. So the fact that you're finishing the project is a part of this grant is actually really important and a little difficult. We're hoping for a little wiggle room because some of the things we're doing, again, we found the time we need to expand. And so part of that would be moving into a larger space, which involves walls and sinks and stuff like that. So we're hoping that, because there's no way, you know, contractors, there's no way it's going to be done in 90 days. <laughs> and is the clock ticking right now? Uh, not yet. Our, okay. our campaign ends in about three or four days. But not only did you not have experience doing fundraising, there was a challenge that, that you had, Joe. Well, yeah, I'll go back. There. But I do want to take credit for some of the brilliant events we had. <laughs> <laughs> Number one, we had a trivia night called Who's Got Your Goat? Yeah, <laughs> Thank you very much. That's fine. Yep. And then a painted sip called Vincent Van Goat. Love yeah. it. Uh, Love it. <laughs> and it was a, a lot of fun. And we, yeah. we had no experience in in any type of crowdfunding or organization. And so we put together a team. We organized this. We were working on it really hard. And then Joe called me one day, and he ended up in the hospital. Oh, my. Um, And so everything came to a halt, everything. My business came to a halt. Um, The crowdsourcing came to a halt. Everything stopped, and everything focused on Joe for a couple weeks. And we uh, became dependent on other people, which is something else we had to learn to do. Yeah. Um, So we reached out to friends that were helping us with this, and they all took the reins. The LGBT Chamber of Commerce jumped right on board. They were helping us with the campaign to begin with. They really just took the reins and did everything that they could to get us through this. Uh, So when Joe got out of the hospital, um, I was still kind of behind in production because I hadn't been making soap for two (laughs) weeks. But I didn't have to worry about the campaign. The campaign has been successful. Um, yeah, we had that doesn't a, mean not to go and check it out because yeah. every little bit always helps. Oh, yeah. Right. And what does this expansion? And we're speaking with Joe and Stan McCoy from Sage Meadow Farm. What are you hoping to do with this expansion? What's the next phase with this crowdsource funding and then the match? Yeah, we're bringing in a bit more automation right now. I'm the only producer. What we'd like to do is mentor other people in underserved communities um, how to run a business like ours. So we're hoping to partner with the Chamber of Commerce, the LGBT Chamber of Commerce, to kind of expand our business um, in a way that it can be taught to other folks. We recognize that we have privilege where we're sitting, and we want to help others. We specifically have reached out to female BIPOC LGBT communities to see if we can bring somebody on board that wants to learn how to run a business and have this as an opportunity so that as we look at retirement in a few years, we can turn the business over to them. Mm. Um, And we've have a candidate that meets all of those goals. Cool. (laughs) Excellent. Um, Currently. And hopefully that person will in turn bring others into the business and do the same. And so my role will go from you know, being the one person who does all the production and deliveries and stuff like that to somebody who's teaching others how to make soap and how to make lotions and how to milk a goat. But you'll never give up that aisle in the big Y. No, no, no. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about that, (laughs) being carried by a big store like Big Y. Yeah, um, that was a great opportunity that came our way. Oh, gosh, it's been we've been at Big Y now for probably five years. 
Um, we started off with three stores. It did well. They bumped us up to six. And then eventually we were in 12, which was too much for me mm. um, because I was doing everything. Yeah. Uh, making the soap and right up to delivering it and putting it on the shelf. So we backed off on four of the stores. and even, But we're in other stores as well. We're in River Valley. We're in 26 locations around western Massachusetts. So we're doing quite well with locations. It's just we need more people on board to kind of make that grow. If you want to sample some of the products, you have an opportunity at another big sometimes vowel that is not big Y, but at the big E this Saturday, right? Are you there at the holiday sampler? We are. We're, we we can sample your wares? Yes. Yes, you can. Yeah. Goats will be there or not? No, unfortunately. I don't think. Are there other products besides lotion and soap that you would like to be making with the goat milk once you're able to finally expand? Um, I think that's kind of our focus right now mm-hmm. is, is the soap and the lotions. Our original intent when we got goats a dozen years ago was to make cheese. Soap and lotion was not even on our mind. Um, but getting uh, a dairy license is really, really difficult. Mm. You're held up to the same standards as, you know, hood. And we couldn't really make And they those. don't do goat milk. No, no. they don't. <laughs> they just do hoodsies. Yeah. <laughs> so we uh, switched over to goat milk soap. Um, it was kind of a fluke. I had taken some classes up in, it was actually goat school up in Maine. <laughs> they teach you everything soup to nuts from birth to death of about goats and what you can do in between. Goats had soup to nuts. Yeah. Sorry. What attracted you to goats versus any other animal? Uh, well, Joe's a veterinarian and he wanted to get some kind of a farm animal. Uh. Um, I was raised on a farm and didn't want anything to do with farm animals. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow we settled on, I wanted fiber goats mm-hmm. because they're much less work. You only have to work with them really once a year, and you just have to keep them fed and happy. But Joe wanted dairy. Yeah, and I think we had checked into the market. I can't remember now, but we had investigated the market, and I can't remember what it was, but something crashed <laughs> the, the market. I, in veterinary school, just kind of fell in love with goats because they're not, they're really smart and they're funny. They're not quite as effusive as a dog, but more so than a cat. (laughs) So uh, they know their names. They can be quite playful. And when you handle them twice a day, they become like a pet. And they're not, the other thing I worry about being in veterinary school is they're not like a cow. They're not going to hurt you. (laughs) Right. We've never even had one knock us down. But, you know, cows can step on you by mistake and it's like, that's serious. Yeah. So I like the size of them too. We began the conversation talking about goat yoga. This is not something that is offered all the time at Sage Meadow Farm in East Hampton. And it's begun to expand because it is so popular. But if people have not heard about goat yoga, do not know what we're talking about. Tell us what it is and why this is something that you brought to your farm, Sage Meadow Farm in East Hampton. Joe? Uh, so how did this start? I mean, I think it was having all these kids around, and, and then I think Stan saw on, online somewhere about a goat yoga. He said, we can do that. And I was learning how to teach yoga myself. Not the yoga, yoga that you can do with goats. I teach Bikram yoga, which is hot yoga. Yeah. You can't really do that with goat kids. No. Um, but we needed to raise money for the East Hampton Farmer's Market. And we saw this thing about goat yoga and said, hey, let's try it out. Uh, so we had one class that sold out in five minutes. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we ended, started having more classes. Those have sell out very quickly as well. And we expanded our charity reach with the, with the goat yoga. All the classes, the money goes to a charity. And we divide it up between human and animal causes. This year is going to be focused on the East Hampton Community Center. Oh, cool. Great. Um, they do great work. 
They do great work, and there's a huge uh, expanded need this year. And goat yoga is exactly what it sounds like. It's not like downward-facing dog where you're doing yoga <laughs> positions that are shaped like goats. It oh. is literally little baby goats running around you while you do yoga, jumping yeah. even up on top on, of your back yeah, when you're doing downward-facing dog. You were like around you. I'm like, no, they they get on you. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> around and on. And people and people. How do people react to it? Why is it so popular? They love it. I mean, I think sometimes when they hear goat yoga, it's really like, what is that? I mean, am I standing with a bunch of adult goats? Am I out in a field in March? Yeah. Is Tom Brady there? Let's go! Yeah, yeah. No, this is inside. So it's comfortable. There are about anywhere from 18 to 24 baby goats, and they just run around. They do the kind of just insanely funny jumping in the air, spinning, and then they'll jump on people. And and quite honestly, it you know people say, well, I, I love the experience, but I really don't want to do yoga. And so even the goat yoga varies from someone just sitting on a mat playing with the goats yeah. to the people who definitely go through the whole yoga class <laughs> yeah. as well. So it, it ranges. It ranges. If, can people sign up already for this spring, or is it? No. No? Okay. Yeah, we, we start planning probably in January okay. for classes that happen in March. Be, so how would be people, forewarned. Yeah, so how would people find out? You can join our mailing list on sagemetalfarm.com and also follow us on Facebook because that's where I do a lot of my announcements. I have to go on a very long walk next week. Any recommendations of Sage Meadow Farm lotions that I can use before I end up injuring myself with you know dry, cracked <laughs> heels and all that sort of thing? Oh, Stash. We have uh, 10 different lotions. They're all basically the same recipe, but they're all different fragrances. Mm-hmm. Um, for a guy, I would say um, probably the Namaste lotion. Okay. What if I'm going to be dressed up as Barbie on one of the days? Does that change Barbie. it? <laughs> um, probably the lilac. Okay. The March will be a Barbie-themed celebration uh, yeah. of drag. Right. I'm uh, also going to put out into the ether, maybe consider lip balm. Lip balm. I was thinking. Yeah. I toy with products, and I've toyed with lip balm. I won't put out a product until I'm sure that it's safe to use. (laughs) And we all appreciate that. Thank you very much. Looking right at you, drug industry. (laughs) Joe and Stan McCoy, the owners of Sage Meadow Farm in East Hampton. You can find out all about what they're up to by going to their website, sagemeadowfarm.com. And January is when you might want to start going on that website and going on their social media. If goat yoga seems like something you want to do. Check uh, out their website because their, their crowdsourcing campaign is currently active. And Phil Corman from Seesaw, the local hero folks. Phil will be along that long walk. We'll both be using Sage Meadow Lotion, perhaps, pushing the shopping cart for the food bank next week. You can find out all about our local heroes at buylocalfood.org. Up next, we'll talk with some of the folks fighting hunger right here in the city of First. We'll be joined by Shannon Rudder, president of MLK Services, and Liz Ogilvie, food system pollinator. I love that. I love it so much. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. It is Hunger Awareness Week here on NEPM, and next week is the 14th annual March for the Food Bank. (laughs) Which is cool. It is cool and probably cold. Very cold. Yes. But hopefully not rainy. It is what I called for many years a ridiculous publicity stunt to draw awareness to the issues of hunger that exist in our community. But I stopped calling it a ridiculous publicity stunt when our next guest uh, called me out on it on Springfield uh, Public Television Station (laughs) (laughs) or Community Access Station 
From her LinkedIn page, she says she is faith-driven to increase equitable access to healthy food, accelerate policy systems and environmental changes that eliminate systemic racism in the food system and everywhere else. A land lover, a farmer, a dreamer, and a mom. And, and my neighbor. And I will add to that <laughs> list a total badass. Yep. Facts. Liz O'Gilvy. Liz, um, for those who aren't familiar with the work, well, let's start with a... Uh, where I started, which is when you called me out for for making fun of this dumb event that I do that's 43 miles pushing a shopping dumb. cart. Tell me why you, I, you decided I to... I called you out, Monty, because anything, anything, anything that we do that reminds people that not everybody has a full refrigerator or something in the cupboard or something on the table can never, for me, fall into a category like ridiculous. <laughs> Is it effervescent? Absolutely. Is it entertaining? Is it no answer? Sometimes so silly <laughs> that no one knows what to do. But where else can we get that? And can we ever have too much of that about anything? So if you can make us laugh while we are walking in the cold and thinking about something that in the United States we should never think about, and that is families kids, people without homes. I don't care what definition or demographic anybody falls in. In this country, this rich, and especially in our state, the second richest state in this land, nothing could be ridiculous when we're calling attention to that. So, um, and maybe I called you out in that way because I do all sorts of interesting things and people probably think I'm ridiculous. So. <laughs> I may have been projecting. But you are ridiculous in the in the greatest way. Like you're doing this work in a, day in and day out. Yep. And I uh, we were both lucky enough to be at the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition and Health, the first in a generation conference of its kind uh, last fall. It was uh, created under pressure by U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern, who also comes on this march. Uh, he had originally pressured the Obama White House to hold another conference about hunger. Uh, but the Biden yep. administration took him out, up on this, the f- former vice president. It took uh, many years, but it, it came to be. And when I introduced you to people that didn't know you there that were from Western Mass working in this, I, I referred to you as a badass. And I've been cleared by our director to call you that as well. Uh, not, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to go over the top using it. But um, you have been doing this work with things like guarding in the community, with things like the Springfield Food Policy Council for a long time. And beyond. Yeah. Let's talk. What, what got you invested in this issue of hunger, Liz? You know, I always worked on issues related to change. I have always, for a very long time, just it's impossible for me to understand this unrelenting um, emergency. Uh, Oh, technology. Oh no! Am I all messed no, up? No, you're you're pretty good. You're pretty good. Maybe shut your camera. Oh, okay. If we shut your camera off, we might. I'm even... going to shut my camera off. Okay, go. good. Yeah. And but we... you know, I think what really drove it home for me was I became a mom really later in life, in my 127th year, and <laughs> I was struck by I wanted to be able to like make my own baby food. I didn't Mm. come from any privilege. You know, you mentioned the White House Conference on Hunger. The last one that we had resulted in food stamps or SNAP now as we know it. And I was a food stamp kid and a free lunch kid. And so for me, being at that conference 
I mean, I was, first of all, ecstatic to be surrounded by Western Mass people. Surround is, is a use, use loose of, a, a loose use of what happened, but I had a posse with me. Yeah. And that was really thrilling. And some of that posse were folks like Kristen, who's just like me, just a regular person who decided I'm going to do this and did it with the, the wonderful work that she does with Stone Soul, I mean, Stone Soup um, Cafe. And so, you know, looking at my baby and recognizing really deeply that there were mothers who didn't have even the small amount of privilege that I had. And that maybe there were babies who not only could their mothers not make their own baby food, they couldn't afford to buy the baby food that was in the grocery store. And then there wasn't any baby food in the grocery store because there wasn't a grocery store. Mm. And I just happened to be, Guarding the Community existed long before me. It was founded 22 years ago by an amazing young at the time and still young black woman named Ruby Maddox, who's gone on to do other amazing work um, developing leaders of the free world. But Ruby just wanted kids to know where their food came from. Mm-hmm. And so with the support of NOFA started growing food on empty lots. Some of those kids came knocking on my door and I had been back in Springfield, which is my home city, about six months. And we chose to live in the Six Corners neighborhood because my husband was an assistant principal at Commerce High School. I've always wanted to walk the walk. So these kids came knocking on my door asking me where I was buying my produce. And did I realize we didn't have a place to buy it? And I had just moved back here from Chicago after President Obama had been elected. And I thought, well, if he can become the president, I should be able to go home and do something. (laughs) And then the something showed up. And I've kind of been on fire about it ever since. We're speaking with Liz Ogilvie who is uh, with the Springfield Food Policy Council, also guarding the community, which we just mentioned there. I think this term has become more common, uh, but a food desert is something that people are starting to learn about. And what brought this the march that I've been doing to Springfield was me learning about food deserts and specifically the food desert uh, in Mason Square, where uh, a person named uh, B. Dewberry had uh, literally gathered the receipts of members of the community of Mason Square uh, and presented them to some of the bigger supermarkets in the area that you've all heard of that I won't throw under the bus right now and said, put a supermarket in our neighborhood. Our neighborhood has more people in it than the entire city of Northampton. Northampton has Big Y and Stop and Shop and State Street and Cooper's and the co-op and fewer people who look differently, perhaps, in larger swath than the people of Mason Square. And when I heard that story, it dawned on me that this is where the real need is, here in Springfield, at Mason Square, in these food deserts. Can you talk about um, the status of Mason Square as a food desert and what gardening the community has meant to help try to be an oasis in that desert, I guess? Oasis is a great word, Monty, because we basically built a farm yeah, um, and a farm store. And the work that B did, who is a dear, dear friend of mine and is still doing amazing change work, was done through the Mason Square Health Task Force, which grew out of Martin Luther King Family Services. So it'll be exciting to hear from Shannon in a bit. But food desert for me, it's a symptom. It's not the disease. The disease is food apartheid. And we live in this country, most 
low-income communities or poor communities. I use words like poor because it's not a bad word mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it's not indicative about the people who live there. It's about the state of things and our comfort as a country with having an underclass of people. Obviously, we don't think of any human beings as being members of an underclass, but our social construct is built on the idea that we need people who make less money in order for some to get very, very rich. Anyhow, so food deserts are just a symptom and Mason Square is absolutely one of the largest, but I would guess that 75% of Springfield is a food desert, mm -hmm. which means, and, and for a while I talked about the area as a food swamp because there's stuff here that passes for food. Mm. You know, our, one of our main streets is State Street, which turns into Boston Road. And in my neighborhood, uh, there are 10 McDonald's within a mile and three quarters of my house and no full service grocery store. But one of those McDonald's is located two blocks away from a Chester's chicken, which is located one block away from a Kentucky fried chicken, which is located one and a half blocks away from a Popeye's all on the same street. Mm -hmm. And in between there are little mom and pop bodega corner stores that also sell not the healthiest food. And it's not cheap. But when the Mason Square Task Force collected those receipts, it was to demonstrate to retailers like Big Y that folks were spending their money and it would be a viable enterprise. It still didn't work out. Um, and it didn't work out for a number of reasons. At that time, they just didn't want to be here. You know, we just have to tell some really hard truths about who wants to serve who. Trader Joe's won't come here because our property values are too low. They base their locations on rooftops. Mm -hmm. I've not been to Trader Joe's in Hadley ever in the 10 years I've been going there and not seen folks from Springfield and Holyoke and Longmeadow and Chicopee. So I think they do fine, but they have a formula and we don't meet the formula. And sometimes the formula is about race. So GTC said, we don't have it. We're going to make it. And GTC and is gardening the community if you haven't been following. Yep. Yes. Yep. Oh, I'm sorry. Guarding no, the community. No worries. I'll try to fill in the blanks. <laughs> at the same time, the Springfield Food Policy Council was working on policy changes. And so we helped lead a community gardening ordinance through our city council that got approved that made it legal for GTC, gardening the community, to grow food. And we were teaching young people how to grow food. You know, our, we are an urban agriculture organization first. We farm regeneratively. That means we don't till, we don't use chemicals, we don't spray our food. So when you buy a bag of carrots at the grocery store and they stay in the refrigerator for two months before they get hairy, you kind of need to ask yourself something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you should look at the label, like why should people buy a bag of carrots that came from China when people in China don't want to eat the food grown in the soil because they have so much lead. So we cleaned up the soil on all of our garden lots bought a lot of soil, which people are always like, you bought dirt, very expensive, <laughs> very dirt. good dirt. Good dirt. Yes. And I love that dirt. <laughs> and a lot of our donors helped me buy that dirt. <sighs> and we grow everything now. And then we got super ambitious. You know, my grandmothers are women of faith and they had an expression that used to say, God takes care of babies and fools. <laughs> I was too old to be considered a baby. And I guess we were foolish in our naivete, but just deeply, deeply committed. Our two former EDs, executive directors, 
Ann Richmond, who's a farmer now, and Ibrahim Ali, who writes an amazing column for the Springfield-based um, point of view and is still doing great change work. We all just had a dream. It was important for me as a black person that we buy land and own it because of the history of black land theft and loss in farming. And also, if you don't own where you live, you will get evicted eventually. So our donors stepped up and we built all of this. And now we're running a store and we don't sell meat. So we're not a full service grocery store. But the amazing thing that we have is we are HIP authorized. HIP is the Healthy Incentive Program. And this was something that was dreamed up at the Springfield Food Policy Council by an amazing food justice champion um, named Frank Martinez Nochito. He's my lifelong hero. Frank's dream was that people who receive SNAP could buy produce. Produce is expensive. So we knew they needed an extra benefit. So initially it was funded by a small USDA grant and now it is funded by our legislature. Senators Comfortford, um, every person that we love has supported this. I don't know where I would be or where our work would be without US rep Jim McGovern who champions everything food all the time, all day long at the federal level. And then we have a food caucus in our legislature who is working really hard to ensure that HIP is funded year round. There's a bill in play that we think will make it permanent. But when you have SNAP or food stamps and shop at the farm store or farmer's markets or farm stands, you get much of what you buy reimbursed. So families can get anywhere from 40 to 80 extra dollars a month. That's huge. It's huge. This is a great place for us to take a quick break. And we are talking, if you didn't already believe it before, now you know why Liz O'Gilvie is a total Rock badass star. and champion when it comes to uh, fighting hunger in our area, working with the Springfield Food Policy Council and the oasis that is gardening the community. And we're going to bring into the conversation the new-ish president and CEO of Martin Luther King Jr. Family Services in Mason Square in Springfield, Shannon Rudder. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Clee Smith. And we're talking with Liz O'Gilvy from the Springfield Food Policy Council and Gardening the Community. And we welcome to the conversation the new-ish president and CEO of Martin Luther King Jr. Family Services in Mason Square in Springfield, Shannon Rudder. She was previously the deputy director of Teach Western Mass, a nonprofit organization working toward educational equity in partnership with area schools, and also was previously the executive director of Providence Ministries, which does an incredible uh, job in making sure people have enough to eat, working with marginalized populations, addressing food insecurity and addiction recovery and housing and clothing and workforce development. Welcome to the Fabulous 413, Shannon. It's great to be with you all today. I'm glad we've overcome (laughs) these small tech problems. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And you're busy out in the Berkshires, probably uh, doing the work of MLK Family Services and something along uh, those lines. But tell it for those who aren't familiar with what MLK Family Services does in Mason Square. Introduce us to your mission at that organization. Oh, wow. Our mission of MLK really is to 
strive to foster an environment where we nurture and empower the aspirations of individuals, families, and youth. So it's led by them to really realize their definition of peace and social and economic justice through self-determination and self-sufficiency. And so we're just, we're in partnership with the community to meet the needs that they are identifying. Some of those in food and some of those beyond, like the Clemente program, which I think is fascinating and really, really cool. That's another one of those sort of business and and leadership development programs. Can you talk about just just a little bit about why a program like that would also help food insecurity? Yeah, so all of our programs are steeped in um, social justice and being the change that we wish to see. So you mentioned uh, the Clemente program, which is a partnership with Mass Humanities, and that's all about, right, like self-agency and advocacy for all things public health related. My partner in this, Liz, was just talking about, you know, the generation of, um, of why Mason Square as a footprint is deemed what we're calling now the a food desert. And so the Clemente program is really a neat program because the only prerequisite is, you know, um, high, high school equivalency. And so it's like all of folks that want to be educated in the humanities um, to, I would say, strengthen their own lived experiences, um, have, have wherewithal to do so. It's a free program. Um, we remove all barriers um, and, and you get to engage with other peers that are um, just steeped in, in wanting to be agents of change and positive disruptors in their community. Um, and, and, and so it's, it's marvelous, right? And that's just one of the programs of MLK, right? We also are really, really committed to emboldening all of our young people. And so we start with our after-school programs, our summer camps. Um, We have a safe environment Monday through Friday, 6 to 9 p.m. at the MLK Center where folks are, you know, ages all the way up to 22 are coming in and, like, really steeping themselves in self-reflection and identity and, like, what do they want to do to contribute to the change that they want to see into the life in the city and the place that they want to be in. Um, and so, so a lot of our work is, is interwoven with the thread of um, just, just equity, right? And like really seeped in letting our community members be the leaders and we're centering their voice in, in a lot of the programs that we're doing. We're speaking with Shannon Rudder, the president and CEO of Martin Luther King Jr. Family Services in Mason Square in Springfield. It's where we'll step off from at 7 a.m. on Monday morning on the 14th annual March for the Food Bank, the beginning of our 43-mile jaunt through the neighborhoods of Springfield and Chicopee and Holyoke and slightly East Hampton and Northampton <laughs> and Hadley and Amherst Ooh. and, let's see, Sunderland, Deerfield, Deerfield and Greenfield over the course 
of two days. The, the, the chasm of difference, though, in some of the, the ways that people are affected by hunger and other inequity issues between where we start and where we end, mm-hmm. um, although Greenfield uh, struggles in its own uh, ways with poverty in a, ma- in a major way, too, for a rural community, there is a, a vast chasm in between those. And connecting those dots, seeing how close we are as a community that you could literally walk if you have enough time <laughs> between them is what's important, in my opinion, about um, the march. And Shannon, you are a major um, food provider and food pantry food that pantry, works yes. with the Food Bank of Western Mass at MLK Family Services. About how many people are relying on what what we've called emergency food, but which our other guest, Liz O'Gilvy, is, is recognizing as it's almost more an endemic issue now than just an emergency. How many people is MLK serving with with food from your pantry? Yeah, so we open our doors. We are intentional around making our program a choice program so that it gives the experience dignity for our guests. And on a weekly basis, we see up to about 200, maybe even more um, neighbors. Um, And I just connected with our uh, program coordinator uh, for the pantry, and she shared with me that folks that were new neighbors to our country um, you know, found themselves in, in line, um, and, and we, we were happy to welcome them um, just one week um, here. So about 200 people come through the doors of MLK Community Center, and then we're really grateful to be in partnership with the Food Bank of Western Mass twice monthly in addition to those weekly um, food, bank, food pantry hours. Um, we host the mobile food truck, and so... Folks, folks will come in addition to shopping um, for food uh, at the pantry on those days as well. That's Shannon Rutter, the president and CEO of MLK Family Services. We're also speaking with Liz Ogilvy from the Springfield Food Policy Council and Gardening the Community. Uh, we should probably mention at some point the uh, <laughs> sponsors that we're supposed to mention of our hunger coverage. Yes, we definitely should. It's covered today by uh, Ted and Barbara Hebert of teddy bear pools and spas. And I think we'll probably take another little break right here more with Liz Ogilvy and Shannon Rutter. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. We're talking the state of hunger in the state of Massachusetts, specifically in the city of Holmes, Springfield, Massachusetts, with Liz O'Gilvy from the Springfield Food Policy Council and Gardening the Community, and Shannon Rutter, President and CEO of Martin Luther King Jr. Family Services. So, Liz, one of the first experiences I had after moving to Springfield was going to the McKnight District neighborhood meeting where they were discussing the revamp of Magazine Park. And you had come specifically to suggest that they plant edible plants as part and incorporate edible plants as part of their overall scheme. Why is this a thing? Or rather, not why is this a thing? That's a beautiful thing. I thought it was a, a fantastic idea. But how is part of your work with the Springfield Food Policy Council to get the city to think more about the possibility of planting more edible plants on its grounds and parks in general. That's exactly. Uh, I'm so glad you reminded me of that because that means I need to call our director of parks and rec, um, Pat Sullivan, to remind him. You know, we used to have these amazing mulberry trees when I was a kid. 
and they were everywhere and every kid had a purple stained face and we also had purple stained sidewalks and, and we had a Dr. Seuss made it famous in this them. city. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but they cut them all down. Mm. And then we green, a friend and a partner started planting trees and I'm like, why aren't we planting fruit trees? Mm. We don't really need any more oak trees. And there's this idea that, well, the fruit, fruit will litter the ground and I, and I know it won't because I have blackberry bushes planted all around a lot that's next to my house. It was actually the homestead of Primus Mason. I found out after we bought our house that that's where his house stood and it had gotten torn down accidentally by the city and the McKnight Neighborhood Council supported my efforts to buy it from the city. And I converted it into a little food forest um, and grow everything there. And from that lot, I've been able to help meet the need of some of the folks that Shannon mentioned. New residents um, who don't come with what we think of as traditional documentation. I struggle with words like documented because why do white guys who descended from people who didn't have any rules suddenly get to make all these rules, right? And if there were any group of people who should be making rules, it would be people who are indigenous or aboriginal. And they just want us to all have enough. I have never heard an indigenous or aboriginal person. And I use aboriginal because my friends who are first peoples have taught me that one can be indigenous to the continent and not aboriginal to where we live. And indigenous, my white folks who are my friends and those who are not, does not mean you were born here. If you are not claimed by first peoples, you are not indigenous. That's just my public service aside. <laughs> but um, I think when we plant a tree, we should plant something people can eat. I don't believe there'll be rotting apples littering the ground. I think people will learn that apple looks right and I'm gonna bite it. And if it's not ripe, they'll wait another week or so and they'll come back and get another apple. And if I find littered apples on the ground, I'm just gonna pick them up and throw them into our various compost bins all around town. So I don't think it's a major problem. And it's about a cultural mind shift though. We as a city have to recognize everybody here is not affluent. Everybody is not going to be affluent. And I think once it's actualized, people will see that their property values will in fact rise. I'd rather buy a house that had a fruit tree planted next to it than a house that had an oak tree that was just gonna bring down more little oak trees that I'm <laughs> gonna have to dig up on a repeated basis. And imagine berries. I planted blackberry bushes because there's a bus stop on the corner where this lot is and keep yogurt containers. And when I see a family out there waiting for the bus, I run out with a container, ask mom if it's okay, tell the kids to try a berry and then tell them to pick away. Hmm. That's that as satisfying as any grant I ever write or am awarded. Oh, that is Liz O'Gilvy from the Springfield Food mm -hmm. Policy Council and Gardening the Community. We have just a couple minutes left, but back to you, Shannon Rudder from Martin Luther King Jr. Family Services, where the Food Bank March will kick off from uh, at 7 on Monday. And thank you for welcoming us there. One of the things that we like to do with this march is to destigmatize hunger. Liz has referred to it as poor. Liz is the reason I call it hunger and not food insecurity. We're not mincing words. But the, uh, tell us what might be um, some misconceptions about the people that you are working with day in and day out at MLK Services, that people who don't come to Springfield often might not, they might have this preconceived stigma about the, the people that you're working with. 
Yeah, they're just they're they're just like you and me. Like we're neighbors. We're all neighbors wanting to um, provide the best for our families um, and wanting to provide the best for our whole selves. And so we're we're excited to partner um, and continue to do this work. My predecessor, legacy leader Ron Johnson, had this passion for. Um, providing food and seeing food as this um, sort of way of of enhancing community, and so we're we're just excited to be able to be one of the options for food for our community. Thereby, it provides an opportunity for gathering and for um, we do this really cool thing at our pantry where we help folks to build menus for the food that they are shopping for and that they'll get. Um, and very similar to what you just said, Liz, I love that idea of like, here, try this berry. Maybe you, maybe it's new to you or, or it's a treat to you. Um, sometimes we'll get food, right, from either the food bank or from, um, you know, partnering grocery stores that are, might not be cultural to our, to our community. And so helping to, like, expand um, and our folks are very excited about the opportunity to not only ensure their food needs, but to connect and collaborate and to be a part of um, this beautiful fabric that we're weaving um, together with them. That is Shannon Rudder, the president and CEO, who's taken over for the great Ron Johnson, who passed away, who is somebody that I got to know a little bit. And I know, Liz, you knew and did, was such a wonderful member of the community. But you're doing such a great job there now, Shannon. Well, I see you. I know I'll see you, Shannon, because I'll be there at your place on Monday morning. But, Liz, you're going to come on the, on the march on Monday with us Absolutely. for a little bit? Absolutely. I would not miss it. I would not miss it. There's probably a chance for me to get another hat. Uh, you can never have too many. And I'm thrilled. I can't tell you how great it is to have Shannon as our new partner in the community. She and I are, are we have something cooking. We're going to oh. activate a space, both literally and figuratively. Um, we're going to activate a space for our um, older young youth uh -huh. to uh, learn about how to run a business, a food business. And so you'll hear more about that. But I just want folks to know that she has really, um, pun intended, dug in with me. Well, we're gonna, uh, we're gonna have gotten her out. We're gonna hear more from you next week. Thank you so much, and I just want to say another thank you to uh, Hunger Awareness Week coverage being supported by Greenfield Cooperative Bank. You can find more stories about hunger and learn more about the 14th annual march for the food bank at nepm.org/hunger. A huge thanks to Liz O'Gilvie and Shannon Rudder. I'm Monty Belmonte, and I'm Kalise Smith. We'll see you tomorrow on the fabulous 413.